are listening to the Sunday Sermon from Crossroads Bible Church in Bellevue, Washington. To learn more about Crossroads, visit us on our website at cbcbellevue.com. I don't know about you, but I really don't like commercials. Are you with me? With one exception. No, not the Geico Gecko commercials. Jake from State Farm, or especially the Liberty Mutual emo commercials. No. What I really get a kick out of is the prescription drug commercials. (laughs) I absolutely love them because at the start of the commercial, you're thinking, this is a wonder drug. I mean, I could be healed of all of my ailments. I could live long and prosper. But then in the second half of the commercial, you hear something like this. Side effects may include headache, dry mouth, loss of appetite, back pain, indigestion, constipation, muscle aches, hemorrhoids. I added that one. Dizziness, a sudden loss of vision or hearing, irregular heartbeat, heart failure, coma, or premature death. (laughs) Now, what I love is this line. Ask your doctor if this drug is right for you. (laughs) Now, whenever I hear that line, I immediately think to myself, there's no way I'm taking this drug. Never, ever. Let me die of natural causes if necessary. Now, as funny as this can be, what's not funny is that we go through life with this idea that wealth and affluence are wonderful and that there are no side effects or dangers associated with acquiring them improperly and illegitimately. In other words, no one says, if you pursue wealth, and if you make it your God, and if you do anything and everything to pursue it, your life will be ultimately meaningful and satisfying. No one warns of the dangers, the great dangers of acquiring wealth improperly and illegitimately. Did you know that there are diseases of affluence? Did you know that that's actually a term that's being used today? Listen to these. Things like type 2 diabetes, asthma, coronary heart disease, peripheral vascular disease, obesity, hypertension, cancer, alcoholism, gout, and mental health issues. All of these are in the category of diseases of affluence. And yet no one talks about the warnings. I mean, what we're told is you need to make as much money as possible. You need to invest that money well. If you have a job that you like, that's great. But you need a raise and you need that promotion. And we're driven to pursue wealth and affluence at any and every cost. And of course, we live in King County, so we feel like this is a need. This is 
mandatory. And we're thinking to ourselves, our spouse definitely needs to work, but perhaps even our children need to work to supplement our family income. At the very least, we're told a little bit more is what we need. We need to have money to be able to ensure that our kids go to college, that we're able to take a family vacation, that we can acquire more toys because there's something gratifying about that next toy. And we need to have money set aside for retirement because we need to retire when we want so that we can really enjoy our lives. And if we're honest, all of this seems reasonable, doesn't it? I mean, that, that's how we've lived our lives. Yet Solomon is going to say in Ecclesiastes 5 and 6 that there are dangers associated with affluence. We can even talk about the affliction of affluenza, wanting more and more, being consumers and finding it hard to be satisfied because we're always restless, needing just a little more. Solomon is going to give us some stern warnings. And there's going to be elements of the passage that we're looking at that are very difficult. First and foremost, even the structure is a little difficult. See, the structure of the passage that we're going to look at, starting in Ecclesiastes 5 verse 8, all the way through chapter 6 verse 9, is what's called a chiasm. C-H-I-A-S-M. Perfect word, wouldn't you think, for wordle, except there's one letter too many. But here's what you need to know. A chiasm is a Greek structure with X marking the spot. Let me demonstrate. The chiastic structure is such that we will start at the beginning of the passage and we will go all the way to the end of the passage. Then we will do that a few more times and then we get to X marks the spot. The Greek letter chi looks like an X in our English alphabet. So everything is going to build up to this. Now, I find it helpful to just think of chiasms like a literary sandwich. And we can even demonstrate a sandwich. You've got the two slices of bread, letter A, letter B, mustard or mayo, whatever you prefer, letter C, the cheese. And then the X is the meat. Or if you're vegan, a meaty mushroom. So we are going straight to X marks the spot. Now, I don't want to belabor this because your eyes will start glazing over. I just want you to quickly glance at this chiasm. Again, we start with the bookends or the sandwich itself, the bread. We move our way in to the meat of the passage. And you can see the meat of the passage. Enjoy the moment. One more slide, much more simplistic. Again, starting at the beginning, going to the conclusion, and then working our way in till we get to the heart of the message. 
Now, some of you are saying, Keith, why did you even have to explain that? Why did you have to bog down there? For one simple reason. We're not going to be walking through this text in a chronological order. And some of you are going to be like, that's different. We've never done it that way before. Well, Solomon likes creativity. Solomon likes shaking it up because he writes what's called wisdom literature, and he introduces poetry into the book of Ecclesiastes. So in order to understand this passage, we have to understand how Solomon's mind works. Hopefully, all of this will be clear as we get into the text. So we begin with a declaration, and what we're going to find is there are three declarations that Solomon is going to make to help us Consider ourselves warned regarding the dangers of illegitimately pursuing wealth. The first is found in chapter 5, verses 8 through 12, and then chapter 6, verses 7 through 9. So his first declaration is people who pursue wealth ultimately won't be satisfied. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me. If you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight. Now, you may want to highlight or underline or put a check next to do not be shocked. This is actually a command in the text. Don't be surprised. Don't be shocked. Don't be shocked at oppression, injustice, and corruption. For one official watches over another official, and there are higher officials over them. After all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the hand, to the land. So here Solomon says, I want you to understand what I've said throughout the book, there's nothing new under the sun. There has always been corruption, there always will be. And we get that, don't we? I mean, no matter what we think of different political parties, of different elected officials or appointed officials, governing officials and governing parties, they disappoint. They always will. There's something that was created in 1995 called the Corruption Perception Index. I just learned about it recently. It takes exhaustive study of now 180 countries, and it tries to determine the most wicked or corrupt nations and those that rank the highest as the least corrupt. The most wicked, at least the top three, are Syria, Somalia, and South Sudan. Those that rank the highest in perception are Denmark, New Zealand, and Finland. The United States ranks 27th. And when I read that, I just couldn't help but think how tragic that that's now how the world perceives us, all the way down at 27th. I think our takeaway is this. Our confidence cannot be in political officials. Our confidence must be in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and is going to come and establish His kingdom one day on earth. And that's where our hope and our confidence needs to be. Not in human government, 
But I love what Solomon does in verse 9. In verse 9, he concludes, I would argue, positively. This is, believe it or not, the most difficult verse in all of Ecclesiastes. Because our English versions aren't sure whether this is negative, as the NIV would take it, or positive, as the NASB, the ESV, and some other versions would take it. I think it's positive. And I believe what Solomon is saying is, despite corruption, despite injustice and oppression, a king, no matter how bad, still holds back the tide to some degree of political anarchy and human starvation. So the king provides for the land. And so Solomon is trying to at least be somewhat optimistic in the midst of what can be a real disheartening book. Now Solomon continues in verses 10 through 12, and he's going to talk about the headaches that come from riches. He says in verses 10 through 12, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. So notice the emphasis upon loves twice. Solomon is not opposed to money. He's opposed to the love of money, the obsession of money. In our church culture, there are many people who are blessed with their finances. In the time that I've been here, I haven't seen anyone who has illegitimately earned his or her wealth. Now, that doesn't mean that such a case doesn't exist. I'm just saying I don't know of it. I mean, you are honorable people. You have worked well for the Lord and for others. But nonetheless, all of us need to take this to heart that we're one step away from loving money and obsessing over money and possessions. And that's the warning that Solomon gives. He says to do so is vanity. There's our word that's emphasized throughout Ecclesiastes, a word that means vapor or mist. In verse 11, Solomon goes on and he talks about the expenditures that come when you're particularly wealthy. He says, when good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? What he's saying is, again, money isn't all it's cracked up to be. The more money you're able to bring in, the more people and the more money you need to sustain your wealth. Let's take the purchase of a house, for example. That's one of our most important financial decisions. But with that comes the need to furnish a house, to maintain a house, to pay property taxes on a house. If you're particularly fond of your house, you may even get a security system to protect your house. One purchase results in many other purchases. What happens when you make it big financially? probably have a lawyer on retainer, you have a financial advisor, you have a financial planner. You have people that you're utilizing to be able to maintain your money and provide a greater increase of your money. 
So it's very, very difficult the more money that you make. Now, we have to balance this because verse 12 is going to talk about the benefits of those that are the working class. And in the same breath, we can say, well, poverty or even the challenges at times of being middle class don't solve everything either. And it's not wicked or evil to be wealthy. There's this fine line in Scripture. There's a tension. Generally speaking, Solomon is going to say that wealthy people, they're going to have to put a lot of time, money, and energy into their finances. And then he's going to say in verse 12, and they will struggle with insomnia. This is so relevant. The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. Now, I don't have to cite research that says one of the primary reasons people stay awake at night is money, either a lack of money or too much money. But again, this is wisdom literature. So Solomon is saying as a general rule, the people who are working class, they tend to sleep better at night because they know they may not be able to climb the corporate ladder and they may not have a lot to maintain. The implication is they're probably a little more content than those of us who have much. We can find ourselves with wealth struggling to find a good night's sleep. That's what Solomon is saying. Now, Solomon is going to continue his argument all the way down at the end of the passage in chapter 6, verses 7 through 9. Remember, this is a chiasm. Solomon writes, all a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. This is a proof text for teenage boys. In verse 8, he continues, for what advantage does the wise man have over the fool? What advantage does the poor man have knowing how to walk before the living? What the eyes see is better than what the soul desires. This too is futility and a striving after wind. Solomon concludes the first part of this structure in chapter 6, verse 9, with that key phrase, striving after wind. This is the ninth and final time he uses that phrase. Now, the reason that that's important is chapter 6, verse 9 marks the halfway point of the book of Ecclesiastes. We started in chapter 1, verse 12, with striving after wind. We end the first section in 6, 9, with a striving after wind. And Solomon is saying, the pursuit of wealth, when it's illegitimate or improper, it's a striving after wind. And I love what he does. He uses the analogy of food. My wife always says to me, you're always hungry. I mean, I feed you one meal and you're immediately thinking about the next meal. And she's right. The reality is, no matter what I ate yesterday, no matter how much I ate yesterday, I'm hungry today. I'm hungry right now. You may hear my stomach growl, 
And that is a reminder that in the same way we need three, four, some of us five, six meals and snacks a day, wealth and possessions never satisfy. They're like food. Solomon wants us to understand in these verses that there's the wise and there's the foolish. But in the end, if we put all of our time, our energy, our passion into earning money and acquiring possessions, it's not going to satisfy. It's the reason that the Rolling Stones saying, I can't get no satisfaction. They understood the book of Ecclesiastes. My guess is they may have even read it. When I was raising my children, we used to frequent the shrine of the Golden Arches. To this day, we still love McDonald's. But when I was raising my three children, whenever we would go into McDonald's, they would ask for a happy meal. But they weren't after the nuggets, the fries, or the Coke. They wanted that chintzy toy. And I know something, and have always known something, that they didn't fully realize. That toy will break momentarily, and it will be discarded by them. There is no value in pursuing that happy meal as a means of happiness. So when we would be at the counter, they would be saying, Daddy, Daddy, I, I want a happy meal. And I would say, shh, 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 no, you, you don't need the happy meal. I'll, I'll buy you a toy later. I'll probably give you a quarter and you can have the equivalent of the happy meal toy. Well, of course, that didn't satisfy them. So they would get louder. And then customers would look at me. And they would see this cheapskate of a father who is depriving his children of happiness. What kind of a man does that? See, the reality is McDonald's has made a killing on the fact that we want to be happy. Our children want to be happy, and we want them to be happy. Have you ever asked why Ronald McDonald smiles so much? It's because he has sold billions of Happy Meals. But yet what we've taught ourselves and taught our children is that happiness is dependent upon happenings. It's dependent upon what I can get and what will thrill my heart for just that moment. See, we're still purchasing the equivalent to Happy Meals today. It's just the price tag is more expensive. And we're thinking that we can be happy with aspects of wealth or possessions, and they don't satisfy. People who pursue wealth will not find ultimate satisfaction in wealth. But Solomon is going to give us a second declaration, and this second declaration and this second section is particularly difficult. It's one of the more difficult portions of Ecclesiastes, and some would say even in the Old Testament wisdom literature. Solomon is going to say, beginning in chapter 5, verse 13, that it's ultimately evil when people don't enjoy life. Look at verse 13. 
Solomon says, there is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. I love that. Hoard hurt. Solomon says that those of us who acquire a lot of possessions and a lot of wealth tend to hoard it. We, we keep it for ourselves. And when we do so, we hurt ourselves and we hurt others. Think that through. When I hoard, I hurt. Solomon says it's a grievous evil. Now, he continues in verse 14, and he says, When those riches were lost through a bad investment, and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. You want to talk about real-life writing by Solomon. Solomon is saying there are wealthy people who have saved, they've invested, they've acquired, and they are waiting for that moment when they are going to share their wealth with their next of kin. But it's possible, as you near the finish line, to have nothing to show for. All your decades of work, all your investments, everything that you have saved, everything that you intend to give, and nothing's left. See, we understand this. All that it takes is a sudden illness, a recession in the economy, or a war, a terrorist attack. Any of those things in a moment can wipe out our wealth. And Solomon wants us to understand that. That's why I'm in favor of giving money to my children appropriately and legitimately now while I still have some. Yes, is there a sacrifice? Absolutely. But it's worth it. That's why I'm in favor of giving to the Lord's work now instead of hoping that I have it remaining so that I can give it in my death. Solomon is a wise man, and he's warning us of what can happen because wealth can take wings and it can fly away from us. Now, in verses 15 through 17, we have what is called the naked truth, the title of this sermon. I wasn't after shock value, although sometimes that helps. I was after what the text is emphasizing. And these verses are so reminiscent of what Job has written. Listen to these verses. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. He repeats that phrase. Exactly as a man is born, thus will he die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Throughout his life, he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. The darkness is a picture of death. Solomon is saying that we come into this world with nothing. We exit this world with nothing in the sense that we can't take anything with us. We talk about when a person is naked as they exist in their birthday suit. 
You come into this world in your birthday suit. You will leave this world in the way that you came. The rabbis used to say, when an infant comes into the world, he comes into the world with closed fists because he wants to accumulate and take as much as he can. When a person leaves this world, they leave this world with open hands because the reality is there's nothing that we can take. Solomon is saying, don't count on wealth being able to make a difference in this life or in the life to come. This is sobering. He says it brings nothing but vexation, sickness, and anger. Again, if it's used illegitimately, if it's used improperly, if it's loved and worshipped. Now, we're going to segue into chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, and we're going to begin to approach the thesis, the X marks the spot. But first, we have some very difficult verses to look at in chapter 6, 1 through 6. First, Solomon is going to emphasize the principle in verses 1 and 2. Then he'll illustrate it in verses 3 through 6. In verses 1 and 2, Solomon writes, "'There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is prevalent among men, a man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God has not empowered him to eat from them, for a foreigner enjoys them. This is vanity and a severe affliction.'" There's that affliction of affluenza, that affliction of wanting more and more, thinking that it'll help us to be happy, but in the end, it doesn't satisfy. Solomon begins to hint at the fact that God is the one who gives wealth. He's the one who ultimately gives strength, and He allows us to experience joy in what He's given us as a good gift. But verse 2 makes it clear that God does not enable or empower everyone to enjoy their wealth. Even that is a gift from God. Verses 3 through 6 now get into some difficult waters. Solomon writes, If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, however many they be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things and he does not even have a proper burial, then I say, better the miscarriage or the stillborn than he. For it comes in futility and goes into obscurity, and its name is covered in obscurity. It never sees the sun and it never knows anything. It is better off than he. Even if the other man lives a thousand years twice and does not enjoy good things, do not all go to one place. And here Solomon is referring to the grave. He's not talking about life after death in this context. Now, I want you to understand this difficult, painful set of verses. Solomon is saying it's possible to not understand true significance in life. See, for those of us who are a part of a Western 21st century world, these verses hardly make sense to us. 
Here's what we need to understand as we reconstruct these verses. Children are a gift from God. Throughout our world, children are not necessarily valued as they should be. But in the ancient Near East and in Solomon's world, the more children you had, the better. Because your children provided for you as you aged. Solomon also is a proponent of the elderly because he sees those who are seasoned as being particularly wise. Again, that is often contrary in our world today. We're doing everything we can to try to be young, to look young, to act young. And we've not understood that with age comes much learning and much wisdom. Lastly, Solomon emphasizes a proper burial. Most of us are trying to figure out, should I be buried? Should I be cremated? How much money should I spend? How do I go about this thought process? Solomon says, a proper burial is the mark of one's life. And that's how it was in biblical times. Your burial was ultimately a picture of the significance of your life. So Solomon is laying out a context and a culture that's different than ours in many respects. And then he drops the hammer and he says, if a person who's been given much can't enjoy it, it would have been better if that person had never been born. Now, this is one of those sections that I would love to just skip. And because I have so much text, just blow through it. I have grieved and wept with those who have experienced a miscarriage. There are people I talked with in preparation for this message who have experienced a miscarriage, and I wanted to understand their take on this passage. It is horrible to experience a miscarriage. And my heart hurts for you if you've experienced that tragedy. I want you to know how sorry I am, and I would have done anything I could have to have prevented that for you. And yet I don't want to blunt or mute what Solomon is saying. And that's what's so difficult about a verse like this. Solomon is saying, even if you lived 2,000 years, I mean, that's double Methuselah in Genesis who lived 969 years. Even if you double Methuselah and you have 100 children, if you don't enjoy God's good gifts, it would have been better if you were never born. Better to experience a miscarriage than miscarry through life. That's what Solomon is saying, no matter how difficult that is to speak or to hear. And that impacts all of us because Solomon wants us to enjoy life. Now we're at the chiasm peak, the apex. We're at the place where X marks the spot. This is everything that Solomon has been driving toward. Verses 18 through 20 of chapter 5. Solomon is going to tell us that we must enjoy God's daily gifts. 
In verses 18 and following, Solomon writes, Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor, in which he toils under the sun during the few years of life which God has given him, for this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. These verses are incredible. In three verses, Solomon brings God out four times in the text. He then, for the fourth time, goes through the need to eat, drink, and enjoy one's life. This is what Solomon is saying. This is the sermon in a sentence. Enjoy God's gifts and embrace contentment. Regardless of the wealth that God has entrusted to you, enjoy all of His provisions, enjoy your work, enjoy the relationships that He has given you, enjoy God's gifts, and embrace contentment. Contentment just simply means that we recognize we don't deserve anything, that God could take everything that we have away in a moment's time. And that whatever God has given us, whether it's little or much, it's what He has ordained, what He has chosen for us at this particular juncture of our lives. Solomon says, embrace God's good gifts and then be content. And it's fascinating, he concludes in verse 20 by saying, to the degree that we learn to enjoy God's good gifts and be preoccupied with them, the past doesn't overwhelm us. The past isn't something that we have to be preoccupied with because God is wanting us to be preoccupied with His, his good gifts in the present. I don't know about you, but I am frequently plagued by my past. And I think through mistakes and sins I've committed, and I've thought through how I wish I would have invested my life differently at different seasons. And that can be paralyzing when I'm focused on the past. But when I recognize God is the giver of every good and perfect gift and He gives good gifts on a daily basis, I don't have time to think about the past. I enjoy the present and I anticipate the future. I enjoy God's gifts, and then I embrace contentment along the way. What are examples of God's good gifts? Well, this text lays them out. God's good gift of life. We're alive this morning. We've been given breath. What are we doing with our life? With what God has given us to steward how are we glorifying God with the gift of our lives? What about the gift of work? That's emphasized throughout Ecclesiastes. God has given us jobs. We may not always love our jobs, but He wants us to worship Him in the midst of our work. He wants us to be able to say thank you, even on a mundane Monday morning. God gives us gifts of relationships. 
whether you're single or married, most of us can be grateful for at least one other human relationship. A roommate, a friend, a sibling, a parent, a grandparent, a spouse, children, grandchildren. What about the CBC family? Are we content in our relationships? Are we content in the age and stage that we're in right now? And then, of course, the gift of wealth. I've argued that all of us are wealthy from a historical perspective and from a global perspective. I'm wealthy and you're wealthy. How are we using our wealth for God's honor and glory? Do we consider it a gift from Him? See, God wants us to understand that He gives wealth. He gives work. He gives relationships. He's given us everything that we have. And ultimately, he says, it doesn't belong to us, it belongs to him. And he wants us to use it for his honor and glory. And in the process, he simply wants us to be thankful. I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm not thankful. I'm not content I'm always aspiring for more or for better. And I can do it in the name of the Lord. I can do it in the name of wanting to provide for my family. But the reality is I can be afflicted by affluence, whatever that may look like. And God's message is simple. Enjoy His gifts and embrace contentment. A rich entrepreneur came across a simple fisherman who was sitting by his boat and had his feet up on his boat. And the wealthy businessman was perturbed. He said to the fisherman, why are you just sitting there? Why aren't you out fishing? And the fisherman said, what's the point? And the entrepreneur said, well, to make more money. I mean, if you go out and fish harder and longer, you will make more money. If you purchase nylon nets, you can bring in more fish, which will mean more money. Then you can hire more fishermen, and you can have a fleet of boats, and then you can be as rich as I am. The simple fisherman said, and then what? The wealthy businessman said, well, then you can sit down and enjoy life. <laughs> fisherman looked to the horizon and he said, what do you think I'm doing? <laughs> I know some of you are saying, Keith, I'm too busy to enjoy life. I would argue you and I are too busy not to enjoy life. There's too much oppression, corruption, and injustice in this world. There's too much grief. There's too much sadness. There's too much pain. And yet Solomon says, enjoy the good gifts that God gives and embrace contentment. Enjoy your present. Look forward to your future. Let's pray together. 
Father, we confess our busyness. We confess our desire to acquire. We confess that we have made good gifts at times into idols. Lord, we say to you today, we want to remember the Lord our God. Deuteronomy 8, you are the one who gives wealth. You are the one who gives possessions. You are the one who gives relationships. You are the one who gives us strength, skill, and the ability to do what you've called us to do. We acknowledge it's all from your hand. You are the giver of every good and perfect gift. Help us to celebrate your goodness. And Lord, we acknowledge the greatest gift of all is the gift of eternal life. That if we simply trust in Jesus Christ, His work on the cross, His resurrection from the dead, we can have an eternal relationship with you. For those who are watching online, for those in person, if you've never trusted in Jesus, trust in Him today. Acknowledge your sin and your need of a Savior. Turn to Him and experience eternal life. For those of us who have trusted in Jesus, we can experience not just eternal life, which begins the moment we trust in Jesus, we can experience the abundant life. The abundant life is when we enjoy life the way God created us, to enjoy it, to worship Him, to appreciate all the little and big gifts He gives, and to glorify Him. Father, we pray for the grace to do that, May we who call Crossroads Bible Church our home, may we be those that are truly filled with joy, that love the life that you've called us to live. Thank you that you bring joy, Lord Jesus. You mean everything to us and we worship you right now. In your great name, amen.